attention to the very wording here. The Apostle Peter writes, keep your conduct, that is, the way that you live your life among the Gentiles, literally among the nations, keep your lifestyle among the nations honorable. And if you were here last week, you, I don't know if you recall this, but I, I made a point that that word uh, honorable is, is really comes from the Greek word, a uh, form of the word kalos, which actually means good. Keep your lifestyle good before the nation. That's a rather general way of, of looking at how we should live our lives before the nation. Of course, we should be good people. Even non-Christians would say we should be good people, generally. Um, but it can also be translated as beautiful or attractive. So let your lifestyle as a distinct people be attractive to people in the world. All right. Uh, for um, uh, verse 12. Yeah. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a covering for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, if you go on and you take a look at... Uh, Verse 18, you're not going to find it up here, I don't think, but if you have your Bibles, it talks about also servants being subject to masters. So in verse 13, it says, we are to be subject for the Lord's sake to, to the emperor as supreme and governor sent by him, and then we are to be subject to our masters. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, wives, be subject to your husbands. And so we're going to look at the whole husband-wife dynamic relationship, and we're going to look at employer-employee relationships, the workplace as Christians, but this morning we're going to be taking a look at the government, and it's very interesting when you look at these three fundamental institutions of government and of marriage and of the workplace, you and I, as the church of Jesus Christ, are called to have a submissive spirit, which which is diametrically opposed to what we find in the world, which is not submission, it's autonomy. The word autonomy coming from two Greek words, autos, meaning self, and nomos, meaning law. So when you look at people in the world, oftentimes, if they're without Jesus, they're living according to their standard, they're going to do what they want to do, and they're going to live lives according to their beliefs. All right? Christians are very different. This is what makes us a contrast society. Christians are not called to engage in that kind of autonomous spirit but we are to embrace what we call a theonomic spirit. That is, in this sense, that we're called to submit to the will of God and to the law of God, which then um, affects, actually, <laughs> it affects the way that we relate to these fundamental institutions in life, such as marriage, such as the workplace, and also the government, right? So we are to, to live our lives and relate to these institutions in a way that is different from the world, but hopefully not in a way that is weird or strange or unnecessarily offensive, but in a way that is actually winsome to the world. So that when the world looks at us as Christians and how we relate to our employers, not bad-mouthing them, not gossiping or gossiping against other people in the workplace, 
or the way that we relate to each other as husbands and wives here, you know, or the way that we relate to the government. We want the, we want the world to, to see on a regular basis, oh, that's, that's how Christians live. And it's not weird. It's not strange. Actually, there's something somewhat appealing, somewhat appealing. So that's the major theme of what we're going to be taking a look at this morning. And I'm going to draw your attention just a moment um, for the sake of time because we have to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper here as well. Um, I, I, when you take it, we're going to look at actually verse 13 through 17. As when we consider these verses, I, I, want to, I want you to understand this. I want you to listen carefully to this. Peter's point in the passage that we're dealing this morning is not to, in, in this series that we're going through, is not to um, lay out the sometimes complex relationship between what we call church and state and the, the uh, tense issues that we sometimes face with that. Um, but what he's doing is, is he's laying out for us as dual citizens, that is, citizens of heaven, where we submit to Jesus above all as king of the universe, but as earthly citizens, as those who live in this world and work in this world and witness in this world, he's laying out for us as dual citizens basically how we are to relate to those in governing authority. And he has some basic principles here for us. So he's, he's, not, he's not dealing with um, the kind of the issues of, okay, when it's right not to submit and when it's not right to obey those in governing authority, although we will touch on that from other scriptures. But he's laying out basic, more positive principles of just basically how we're to relate to the government and governing officials, okay? So I want to read verses 13 through 17. And you can follow along on the overhead or your Bible, your device. It's going to read those words again. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every institution. Now, that could mean uh, the institution of education. It could be the institution of marriage. It could be the institution of workplace and so forth. But he gets specific here. He said, be subject for the Lord's sake to every institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme right, because there was an emperor in the Roman Empire at this time, uh, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are, not, uh, who are free, not using your freedom as a covering for evil, but living as servants of God. And, 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 and Peter's saying, you know, and he's seen something among Christians. It's very easy for these um, early church Christians to say, we've been set free from our sin and from the guilt of sin and the penalty of sin in order. We've been set free from all these things through Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is now our king, and now we don't have to listen to other authorities because we're following Jesus. And Peter's saying, no, no, no. No, you live submissive lives before those in authority, particularly the government. Verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now, when, when, when you look at, at this passage, what you see is this, and I'm just going to lay out for the sake of time some basic fundamental pr uh, principles as to how as Christians we are to relate to governing authorities. Number one, talking about governing authority, um, Peter notes this, that, that government is not... Uh, what shall I say, an, a, a, a necessary evil that we have to deal with. But government is, is not a human construct, but it's something that is instituted 
by God himself, and the purpose of government, according to the text, is to promote that which is good, and it is to restrain evil. Very fundamental. He doesn't go into the, all the intricacies of government, but he says the task of government is to promote the good and restrain that which is evil in this world. Um, I could go a long time with that, but that's just basic principle number one. Okay? And true, government doesn't always promote the good and doesn't always restrain evil, but nonetheless, that is its task. Number two, Peter notes that there is a, 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 there are certain levels of authority within government. So he talks about the emperor, and then he talks about governors. And we have that today, right? We have, we have kind of a hierarchy of authority. So we have federal authority, and we have provincial authority, and we have local, uh, local governmental authority, right? The city authority, and, and so on. So he mentions that. There's a hierarchy within uh, governing authority. Thirdly, um, what Peter notes here is that there is no, and we see this also in Romans chapter 13, there is no government authority in place that is there just because they happen to be there, but they are there by divine orchestration. Because the, the, the fundamental understanding is this, is that God is a sovereign God, and there's nothing that happens in this world, even the most minute things that are not orchestrated by his hand, and that includes government authority. Whether they're serving well or not, it doesn't matter. They are there by God's divine ordination, okay? And again, if you want to know more about that, look at Romans chapter 13. And then finally, what he notes here is that you and I are called to submit to governing authority. Now, the word there in the original language, the form of the word hupatasso, which literally means we're to, to, we're to line up behind and follow. So we're called to, to submit to governing authority and we are also to pray, according to what the Apostle Paul says to the young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, we're also to pray for governing authorities. Again, whether they rule well or not. And especially if they are not ruling well, then I think we should pray even harder, right? So those are, those are some of the principles that Peter lays out here. Now, one other thing in this regard, in regard to this passage, um, A.V., would you put those two passages up there? I want you to take a look from Romans 13 and Titus 3, verse 1. Let every person, there's that word, be subject or be submissive. Same word in the original language. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Did you get that? Those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So, that's a pretty strong language. Then Titus 3 verse 1, remind them, there's that word again, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work. So that's, that's, that's the mandate for the church. That's the mandate for, for, for Christians. Now, if you, if you take a look at those two verses there, and then you read through 1 Peter chapter 2, the text that we're dealing with this morning, it's not real difficult to understand, really, and it's really um, not that difficult to implement. It's not hard, I think, to be willing to, to bend our wills and submit and obey and pray for governing authorities when they rule well, right? When they rule well. But how often do they really rule well? 
And I want you to think about this as Christians, as a church, when you look at the, the, the laws and the decisions that are made at the federal level and the provincial level and even at the local level, you do see individuals that, that you can, in, in the word of hupatasso, that you can line up behind and go, yeah, amen, I can support that. But usually not the majority, right? And do you see where dual citizens, there's that, there's that, that tension there, right? And, you know... Um, did you, did you see, and it's a dicey thing to preach about the subject that I'm dealing with, but did, did, you, did you see a couple of weeks ago um, the video online where I, it was, it, and you can correct me after the service, I, I may get some of the details wrong, I think it was like a, a parliament building or a parliament room where you had a number of uh, uh, male government officials putting on uh, pink high heels and prancing around upon a, par a parliament room, do you see that? And they, it, because they were in support of women who were experiencing uh, domestic abuse. And, and that's fine for a government to support women who are, who are just experiencing terrible times of domestic abuse. And we would, we would all give a thumbs up to that. But in order to, to, to show their support for that, they put on the, the pink high heels. And they're, as men, they're kind of prancing around like this, like the room. And, and I looked at that, and I'm like, do you, ever, do you ever get that where you look at something like that and you just go, Really, with the hundreds of thousands of individuals we have in this land, that's the best we can put into office? I mean, really. Uh, and there's other things like that. It's just sometimes this is absolutely embarrassing, the decisions that are made. So that's, that's some of the tension that we have as Christians. But here's the thing I want to underscore to you, that this tension that we have as dual citizens with the government, in times when it's really well and times when it's not, is, is something that our brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing around the world in a much more deadly fashion, and which the, the Christians of Peter's day were also dealing in, in a much more severe and deadly fashion in ways that we, we have no idea. For instance, to put this, this passage in a little bit of historical context, um, uh, the, uh, many commentators believe that when Peter wrote this, this epistle, 1 Peter, he did it during the time of Emperor, uh, Roman Emperor Nero. And kids, I don't know if you, you study in class about Emperor Nero and the things that were going on in the early church, but it was a time when, when, when the, the, the governmental grip on Christians was very strong. Christians were being thrown to the lions. Christians were being sewn into the hides of wild animals that had been gutted. And they were sewn up, and then they were thrown to wild dogs, and they were devoured. Um, Christians were thrown on a gridiron where they would heat up a hot, hot seat in a coliseum and burning hot, and, and they, were, they would force Christians to sit on that hot iron, you know, and be burned. And you think about the pain that's involved in that, or, or the story goes, I don't know how much historical validity there is to this, but it's said that, that Christians were killed, and then their bodies were painted with tar and pitch, and they were set on fire, and then they would be placed on... Uh, on, on tor they would be used as torches for the, for the parties of Nero and these, these kinds of things. Those were the conditions in which our brothers and sisters endured um, years ago, a little over uh, 2,000 years ago. So it was, a, it was a very difficult thing. One historian, to put one more thing into context, one historian writes this. A.V., if you put that up there, the next uh, quote. This comes from a book called Living Wisely with the Church Fathers by a man named Christopher Hall. He said this, referring to Christians at the time. It was their stubborn exclusivity 
their differentness that endangered not only themselves but others. If only they would show tolerance and appropriate respect to Caesar and the Roman gods, they might well be able to keep their distinctive faith without persecution. This writer goes on to say, it was also the Christians' repudiation of the Roman Empire's cultural values that constituted a real and present danger. Therefore, they were considered as a cancer in society. Well, how'd you like to be identified as a cancer, right? So, so Christians, Christians were, were, were persecuted for, for two main reasons. One, because they were considered stubborn, because they would not identify the emperor as deity, as a god. And secondly, they were viewed as seditious. And that meant that they were those who were unwilling to embrace the cultural, moral values of the Roman Empire at that time. So it was a very, very difficult time for them. And so the question is this. What do you do when you live during a time when the government turns against you? Or at the very least, enacts laws that inhibit religious freedom, encourages all forms of sensuality, increases debt to dangerous levels, fails to protect the unborn, and clearly undermines the kingship of Jesus Christ? What are you supposed to do as a Christian in those times? What do you do when the government enacts laws in the interest of toleration and inclusion that clearly undermine God's creational and moral order? Again, what are you supposed to do as dual citizens? Now, this is a dicey thing. And I'll tell you why. Because of the fact that in terms of our identity, you and I are dual citizens. What that means, again, is that we are citizens of this earth. We live in this earth on this earth, we work on this earth, we witness on this earth, we, we, we live our lives here below, and as such, we are called to submit ourselves and respect those in positions of authority in the government. But at the same time, in contrast to those who are not Christians, we also view ourselves as citizens of heaven. What that means is that our sights are set on the promised land to come. We are pilgrims on this earth for a time, but we know our ultimate destination is in heaven where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God as the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and therefore our ultimate allegiance is to the King. It's to the King. Citizens of heaven citizens, but also of this earth. And because we are citizens of heaven, there are times when we have to rise up and we have to say, no. No, I will not be submissive. And no, I will not obey. I'll pray, but I will not obey. Now, why do I say that? Because I'm giving a qualification to this call to be subject to the governing authorities. Well, you don't see that in Peter. But you see that in the rest of the Bible where sometimes you have believers in God say, no, I can't do that. And I won't do that. Now, if you've been raised in the Christian faith, some of the things that I'm going to bring to your attention, actually three very quickly, you, you may well know. But, but if you're new to the Christian faith or not very familiar with it at all, um, this may be somewhat of a surprise to you. I don't know, but you may, you may find it interesting. But here, here's some situations where citizens of heaven said, no, I can't, I can't abide by that. Number one is Daniel in the, uh, the Old Testament. Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, if, if you know that story, you'll remember that Daniel and his friends were in Babylonian captivity. 
And in the providence and the orchestration of a sovereign God, they were actually placed into positions of governing authority in the Babylonian government. Now, the king of the government at that time was who? It was Nebuchadnezzar, who was very hostile to people of faith, especially of the Jews who were in captivity in Babylon. But Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were actually in positions of governing authority. And you remember that it was King Nebuchadnezzar who one day decreed that a, a, a tall image about 90 feet made out of gold would stand tall and when people would see this image going through the streets, they had to stop what they were doing and they had to bow down before this image. Now you have to remember now that this is a very significant for, for Daniel and his friends because they were Jews and they were people of faith. And so what Neb this, 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 this get in our heads what Nebuchadnezzar was actually requiring. He was actually requiring, commanding Daniel and his friends to do what God cl clearly forbade them to do. Namely, bow before a foreign God, right? The first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me and you shall not bow down to them. So King Nebuchadnezzar was saying, you know, you just wipe that clean, you just do what I tell you to do. But in addition to that, some chapters later, a decree was made that, that prayer should not be made to one's own personal God. And so there, what Nebuchadnezzar was doing with Daniel is he was basically saying, I am forbidding you to do what God commands you to do, namely pray. And that put Daniel and his friends in a very dicey situation. But they stood their ground like men, and they said, this is something that we cannot do. It will fulfill... Um, our duties within positions of government, but if you require us to do that, we are saying no to that, even if it means our lives. So that's one such incident. Now, here are a couple of incidents that are, are much briefer. You remember the Hebrew midwives, another Old Testament book, Exodus chapter 1? The Hebrew midwives were commanded, decreed by Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to do something rather dastardly and immoral. That's because the Jewish people in Egypt were growing and growing and growing, and the Egyptians were being concerned that these Jewish people were growing so rapidly, were going to grow to such an extent that it was going to cause um, insecurity within the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh decreed that the Hebrew midwives should put to death all Jewish baby boys. The girls were allowed to live, but if those boys were born into the world, they were to kill those boys. And these Hebrew midwives said to themselves, we cannot do this, and they would not do that. And then finally this, now in the New Testament, you remember there's a time in the early chapters of Acts where the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, said to Peter and the apostles who were spreading the word of Jesus, basically they were saying in kind of crass terms, we want you to shut up about this. We want to shut your mouths. We don't want you to preach Jesus anymore. And you remember those memorable words of Peter. He said, we must obey God rather than man. So there, there are times in the lives of the Christian community where things get to such an extent where we have to say, we, we can't abide by that and we won't abide by that. The difficulty becomes like, how, how exactly, how do, you, how, do you, how do you express your, if you, if you call it that, how do you express civil disobedience? How, do you, how and actually when do you say it? And it really depends if you think about it, the, the, the historical time period in which we're living, the kind of government that we have, for how long the government has been enacting laws that, that are very difficult for Christians to obey, 
Um, it depends on the laws that have been enacted. It depends on the issues that are at stake and, and all of that. And, and so it's, it's difficult to know when to say no and when to say yes. And, and you know, even then, Christians are not agreed, right? <laughs> I mean, you think, you think of this whole issue, and this is the last thing I'll, I'll mention here. You think of the issue with, uh, <laughs> I'm really nervous about even bringing it up, but even COVID, right? We just want to forget about that, and I get that. But even that, I only use this as, as a, a situation where uh, the Christian community was divided. The Christian community divided here in BC um, because you had many more strictures than we even had in Phoenix, Arizona, right? I mean, we had more freedom to do kind of what we wanted to do as a church. We still had strictures, but not to the degree that you had, right? And so as you face these strictures, you find Christians actually, you know, they're, they're, you're, you're, you're dealing with, with how to apply the principles of our text, right? How do you do that? How do you remain submissive, but when, when do you actually say no? And there was one side of the matter where Christians were saying, when the government said, we don't want you to worship together for a while, Christians were saying, you know, we're not going to do that. The Lord commands us to worship, and you have no right to say that, right? And so Christians are finding ways to get together, and, and then there are other Christians who said, well, listen, the, the government actually is, is, is not saying over the long term, and we haven't had a long history of the government saying, no, you may not meet together. We do have that freedom of religion. We have anyway. But for the time being, they're saying, no, we don't want you to worship together because there's a public health crisis. And some people, people were saying, well, it's not really health crisis so much. You're making too much of it. Some others are. Anyway, my, my, point is, my point is you see the tension here. And so... Um, Hey, have fun in your uh, groups this week <laughs> talking about this stuff. But listen, if, if I can say this, because I have formulated some questions. I sent them out to the leaders already. I'm going to let you grapple with these things. But listen carefully to this, my friends. When, when you go into your groups and you discuss the relationship of Christians to government, you may find even within your group that you might have some agreements and some, some disagreements. Um, bear in mind that that we're always to deal um, judiciously with one another and lovingly with another, even though we may have some disagreements on this. And do your best to try to apply the scriptural principles and the revelation of the word of the Lord to the particular situation and the questions that you're dealing with. And always remember this, we've developed our care groups for the sake of inviting others into them. And so just think, just imagine that you, even if you don't, imagine that you do have visitors with you so that that will kind of color the way that you interact with each other, right? But anyway, my, my point is this, again. I'm, I'm saying we've gotten off a little track here, but you're all wondering about these kinds of things. And here's another question that you're going to face in your care groups is, do Christians ever have a right to revolution? Sure, we have a right to civil disobedience. Is it ever right for us to bear arms in the fight against the government? right? I'll let you grapple with that in your, your groups. Think about that. But anyway, there's all kinds, there's many more questions than arise than anything else. But you notice that Peter and many places in the Bible are not dealing with those issues. And with wisdom, we need to try to employ the scriptures in these particular situations as best that we can. But I want to leave you with this. And it's just two minutes. I want you to notice the final verse. This is how Peter wraps things up. Positively, he says, almost when all is said and done, Here's a concluding point in regard to this. Honor everyone, verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. We could say love your fellow brother and sister in Christ. And then these two things. Fear God 
and honor the emperor. And he, he doesn't say that one is di always diametrically opposed to the other. So what he's saying is fear God. What that means, I think, in this situation, he's not saying, you know, be afraid of God, but what he's saying, your, your, your ultimate respect and your allegiance has to be to the Lord. It has to be to the reigning king, Jesus. But at the same time, he says, you are to honor your earthly king. You're to honor the emperor. And it's very interesting that the word honor there is the only um, situation in verse 17 where a present continuous tense is used. In other words, he's saying, you know what? Let your ultimate allegiance be to Jesus, but don't forget to honor the emperor and continue to honor the emperor. Those are the principles that our text lays before us. I want you to think about those principles and this week in your care groups, I want you to do your best to interact with each other as iron sharpens iron and bring these principles to bear in the issues that we are facing today. That's it for this morning. Um, I want to end with prayer and then we are going to not enjoy the, sometimes the tensions that we have in this world, but we're going to enjoy the community and the love that we have here in this body as we come forward to the table. And before we partake, let's uh, come to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, O oh Lord, recognizing that, um, yeah, we are a contrast people and we are dual citizens, citizens of heaven, as we have seen, but also citizens of earth. And Lord, there are many times when we have to navigate issues, um, uh, whether it be in this church, whether it be in our marriage, um, marriages, whether it be in um, our school system, whether uh, it be in the workplace, but especially as we've seen um, in the way that we relate to those in governing authority. Uh, Father, we know that that um, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy to pray for kings and those who are in authority. And so, Lord, we pray for our governing officials. Um, Lord, the truth of the matter is we have certain individuals who are serving well, men and women of integrity. And there are many, O oh Lord, that at times are simply embarrassing, and we realize that they stand diametrically, uh, diametrically opposed to King Jesus and his will for our lives and the moral order that he has set in place. And so, Father, sometimes in the midst of the weakness that we feel, we pray for our governing officials and we pray, O oh Lord, that they may be confronted in some way, whether in uh, parliament, whether in various buildings of governmental authority, whether it be in the context of the church, we pray, O oh Lord, for the transforming work of the gospel to change them. Because, Lord, they simply need to be changed from the inside out if they're going to begin serving you and your people and the citizens of this land with integrity. And, Lord, for those who are serving well, especially for those who confess Christ, God, we pray, give them boldness. Give them a steely spine. Give them the willingness to say, Christ is king, and I will not compromise in my service to him. God, bring alongside of these individuals people and occasions and um, this various other means, Lord, that will support them and encourage them and, 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 and give them boldness. So, Father, we bring these things before you. And now as we gather together, Lord, to come forward for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Father, whatever tensions there are in this world, 
help us to put them aside for just the next 10, 15 minutes as we focus on the blessings that King Jesus has brought us in giving his very life for us, his body and his blood, so that we might be saved from our sins and that we might live ultimately a life of submission to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.